Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Before we jump into today's program, I wanted to get this uh, comment in from yesterday. This is from Paul. He says, really enjoyed the program with Terry Tempest Williams uh, tonight. Uh, talking about last night. While watering the dry spots in our lawn here in Brigham City, using my headphones with built-in radio, 3M Tech, he says, on 92.1 FM. Uh, so thanks a lot for that, uh, Paul. And that brings up a point I want to emphasize. Uh, we are live uh, each morning, Monday through Thursday, at 9 a.m. Uh, but you can also hear us at 7 p.m. Uh, in the rebroadcast. And each of those times, you can stream us at upr.org. Or, at your convenience, you can hear any of our Access Utah programs by going to upr.org. Click on Programs to find Access Utah. Thanks for listening. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater in Logan. Annual gala dinner followed by the opening night performance of Ragtime with full orchestra on July 9th. Details at utahfestival.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Bloomberg Businessweek asked Paul Ford, can you tell me what code is? Ford's answer turned into, what is code? A treatise of some 4,000 words explaining the world of computer programming. It comprised an entire issue of the magazine in June of 2015. It's perhaps most interestingly also an exploration of the culture of coders. Josh Tarangel in his introduction says software has been around since the 1940s, which means that people have been faking their way through meetings about software and the code that builds it for generations. Now that software lives in our pockets, runs our cars and homes, and dominates our waking lives, ignorance is no longer acceptable. Paul Ford is a writer and programmer. He lives in Brooklyn. He's founding partner of Postlight, a company in New York City that builds in Internet platforms and develops interactive products. You may have heard his commentaries on NPR's All Things Considered. He also writes for The Morning News and other publications. His website is ftrain.com. Paul Ford, welcome to the program. Tom, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, so this is, this is one of the most fascinating things I've read in the past year. I, I, I think because I find the whole world of coding mysterious, and especially, as I said, the, the culture of, of coding. And so I want to share this with, with our audience. So that's uh, why we have you on, uh, on today. So appreciate you uh, being with us. So as you said in the beginning of your article, editor from Bloomberg Business Week came to you with that question, can you tell me what code is? I guess that's where it started. It did. He, uh, they were going to do a special technology issue of the magazine. And he said, you know, let's, let's write that piece. Let's write the piece that explains what programming, what code actually is so that anyone can understand it. And uh, I turned that in. I turned it in. It was, it was long at that point. I turned it in at 10,000 words. And normally what happens is they say, all right, well, let's get this. Let's cut this way down. Uh, but in this case, the, the editors decided to go in another direction and um, said, all right, let's triple the length. And it comprised an entire issue of, of the magazine. It's essentially, you know, book length, which is uh, it's very interesting. Uh, so, as you point out uh, in, in your article, we've got uh, programming, coding, running just about everything we we pick up these days. It's it's ubiquitous. You know, it's become a almost like a substrate of every aspect of culture. And I mean, you know, technology is everywhere. It's, we we drive cars and we. We use shovels and we use the alphabet to write things. But digital technology in particular in the last 20, 30 years has just, it's ended up on your wrist, it's ended up in your pocket, and it's, it's ubiquitous in a way that we've, you know, it's a, a kind of common platform with uh, things like, you know, Google search or, or iPhones or Android phones. There's kind of a common platform that we're all sharing that's in our pockets that's there all the time. And that's that is new, and it's very powerful. And so the, the point of the piece is really to try to explain who's making that. Why is that? Why is this new, insanely powerful world? Uh, uh, you know, here it is. How do we? Who's who's in charge of making it happen every day? And we'll get into that. And and the culture, uh, as I keep saying, is is the most fascinating part uh, part to me. Uh, you have three pictures in the article. Very interesting. You'd say that. Uh, um, you know, code changes the world in some interesting way every month. So you have a, a robot. Uh, there's a child looks like he has a cochlear implant to help him hear, and uh, then you say, or a disturbing way, and then there's a uh, 3D gun. 
So it's, that's right. it's, it's, it's a 3D all over. Printed gun. That's yeah, right. yeah. That's right. Yeah, I, I guess all guns are 3D. That's right. <laughs> 3D printed gun. <laughs> um, no, I mean that's it's a reprint. So that gun, when you think about it, right, it just starts as data, as information, and gets passed around in the same way as anything, as as email or as uh, as a, you might send somebody a word document. But you're sending them the plans for a weapon, and a 3D printer can then print out the pieces, and the human being can put them together, hmm. and. That raises all sorts of questions. If the gun is information up until the very last minute that it's in your house, and that's the sort of thing that digital technology makes possible, if, if it's just information until you kind of open it up like you might open up your, your Gmail, um, you know, what, what does that do to culture? Are we ready for that? Hmm. So let's, uh, you know, part of this is it just seems mysterious, and I think that's why the fascination of reading your article but uh, part of it really isn't. And you say anyone using a pen and paper can do anything a computer can. You just can't do those things billions of times per second. Yes. I mean, you know, there's a point I make in the piece and that I, I think a lot about, especially because I, I work as a technology consultant. And um, the, there's a real, the easiest way to sell a new technology is to go, it's so magical. It's so simple. And so there's a tremendous vested interest in not talking about the nuts and bolts and just going, look at this wonderful thing that we just made possible. It, it, it fits in your pocket. It'll, it'll track your fitness. It'll, it'll be wonderful. And uh, the reality is that it's just a regular mundane job. It is as clerical as can be underneath it all. We mythologize programming, and it is very, very hard, and it does require a certain amount of talent to do complicated things. But like any of us, when we come to our jobs, Everything you do all day is not that complicated. There are parts that are hard, but an awful lot of it is just kind of moving things around and opening a window and talking to your person who's down the hall and asking them what they're thinking. And that's just true of programming, too. It really is just a job. Uh, and it's a job that I, I believe that just about any smart, motivated person can do. Uh, it, this might be a good place to jump to the very end of the article, and your question is, should you code? And uh, Some people, an like, increasing number of people, I think, are repurposing their careers. You read articles of coal miners who are now going to coding class. That's right. You know, I, I read that article, too, and I've, you know, I, I heard from a lot of people who are making that transition in life um, after, after this article came out. And it's, it's a tricky one. Um, there are good reasons to learn to program. A career in programming, like building websites or updating, uh, you know, creating apps and so on, is, uh, it is exactly that. It's a career. It takes quite a bit of skill. And it's the sort of thing that you should do. Uh, you should have – I don't necessarily believe that everyone should follow their passion. I think that that's something that you say when you're, you have a lot of options in life. Um, but it, it's the sort of thing that you should at least be able to enjoy and have some – some excitement about in order to motivate yourself to keep going for years and years. Because it takes, I would say it takes five years to a decade to get pretty good at all the social and technological things that are involved in, in building a first-class app. You can get started in a couple months, but it really is a long-term commitment to get good and to enjoy the things that, the, that this career offers to you. So um, should you learn to code in that way? Yes, if you take a couple online classes and find them interesting and uh, read a couple books and they're like, I do want to figure that out. Or you spend a lot of time looking at software and thinking about how it works. Absolutely. Should you learn a little bit about code? Almost everybody should in the same way that kind of everyone should, um, you know, know algebra or know how to calculate the area of a room. I mean, it is just, it is, you're going to find it in your life all over the place. Uh, you know, it, even if you're using Microsoft Excel a lot, that's, that's coding. Um, so there are arguments those ways. I think a, a big life transition to become a programmer and get rich, uh, it's like anything. It might work for a year or two if you're lucky, um, but there's a lot of people where it doesn't work. And you've got to be very careful. So uh, get rich, probably not going to happen, at least except for a few. Uh, just a basic career to replace whatever you were you know, technolo technologicalized out of, I'm making up words here, forced out of due to new technology, uh, is that an option? I mean, it, it is, but it's like anything else. The, the people who, are, who have a talent and time are the ones who everyone's most excited to hire. Um, the, the, the way that you can really empower yourself with technology is if you understand something really well, you can learn enough about programming and code to be very valuable 
uh, in in a technology environment. So um, if you you know my my wife works in construction and a lot of her job is managing. She's a project a project manager and a lot of her job is managing resources using technology. Um, and they do it in all sorts of different platforms. They use WhatsApp and chat and so on. And as time is going on in her career, more and more tools are showing up that are making it easier for her to do her construction job. Now, if she came to me you know, as a programmer, you know, and as someone who's been in technology for a while, if my wife, who hasn't, came to me and said, I am really interested in this. I want to figure out how it works because I think I could help somebody build a, re- a better project management tool for the kind of construction work that I do. I would say absolutely, that is worth your time. Go see if you can figure that out because there's a lot of opportunities to bring that domain knowledge into the world of technology. And if you learn enough about programming, um, that's, that's like having two superpowers. But uh, So combining what you're good at and what you're enthusiastic about with technology, with the idea that kind of software is eating the world and that it is changing things whether you want it to or not, could be very empowering for people. Um, rather than just a complete reset of their career. Hmm. There is something attractive, I think, about the idea of, you know, okay, I've sourced out of the coal mine, I'm going to become a a coder. You're saying it's more complicated than that. Maybe more as a tool for for something else you're going to get into. I mean, you know, I think the thing is is that you could learn. So if you are a coal miner, you can – there's a couple things you could do. You could focus on – Learn how to create good, strong websites and then focus on your local community and build um, websites and tools or help local businesses onto Facebook in more intelligent ways and things like that. I mean, there's, there's services like that that you, can, that you can pick up and develop in the course of about a year to 18 months. But it's like anything. It's a, it's a career that requires you know, enthusiasm and focus and, and a long-term, long-term desire to succeed. Um, I think the I read that article too, and it was in uh, Back Channel. I remember reading it about the uh, the coal miners, and it's there. Is, it's just a lot of work. Like as you read about these people who are resetting their careers, um, really more power to them. Like they are stubbornly going to figure this out. Mm-hmm. But it's that almost like that stubbornness is is what's going to get them through, right? So there's just there's a lot of promises. There's a lot of code schools. They're very expensive, um, and it can feel it can feel like there's a magical transformative thing you can do. You can write a check, learn a couple things in a couple of months, and then suddenly reboot your career. And you, some people can, but it isn't. It's not a, a universal solvent. Hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, more with uh, Paul Ford, uh, his. Uh... Uh, article, which comprised an entire issue of Bloomberg Business Week last year, is titled "What Is Code." And when we come back, I want to get into uh, maybe talking about young people who are looking at this as a career, and that'll get me into the, the culture of, of coding. Um, and we'll introduce you to uh, a fun, <laughs> fun character in uh, in this article: the man in the tote blazer. There's there's a lot of fun in in the article as well. More following break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association's Aggie Desk Plate. Aggie Desk Plates show Aggie pride and support student scholarships at USU. More information at alumni.usu.edu. And Dr. Marcus Harris, joining Dr. Nathan Call at Budge Clinic Family Medicine. Medical services including newborn and adolescent care to adults and the geriatrics. Office hours and appointment information available at 435-716-1150. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. They've sold millions of records, earned a devoted following, formed their own subculture, and yet they're one of the most hated bands in the world. Next time on Q, Insane Clown Posse will join me to address their many contradictions. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Today at 1, right here on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by UPR Day sponsor members, the Bringhurst family of Nibley, in memory of longtime Uinta High School German teacher, Herr Jones, on what would have been his 74th birthday. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I have with me Paul Ford. He's a writer and programmer. He lives in Brooklyn. 
and uh, you may have heard his commentaries on NPR's All Things Considered. He writes for the Morning News and other publications. His website is ftrain.com. Last year, Bloomberg Businessweek asked uh, Paul Ford a question, can you tell me what code is? And his answer turned into a full issue of the magazine, comprised entire issue, uh, explaining the world of computer programming and the culture of coders. We have him uh, for the hour. You can join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, so before I get into the culture of, uh, of coders, very interesting, uh, maybe just a brief bit of background, getting us into programming languages, you write, Code is inert. How do you make it ert? I like that line, by the way. Thank you. Uh, so that gets us into languages, right, I think? That's right. So programming languages for people who have never dealt with this world, you give instructions to a computer. It's, it, computers are actually very dumb. They, they get lots of tiny, tiny little instructions. Um, move this little bit of data into this box and take it out and on and on. It's very granular stuff. And... Um, a couple levels above that are things called programming languages, which bundle up all the things that you might normally want to do, like print words on a screen or uh, register that a mouse has been moved and changed the color of a box. They do stuff like that. And um, a programming language has a name. So there are languages like C and Perl, Python, Java, JavaScript, and each one is its own dialect. Uh, and it's its own sort of style of communicating with the computer. And so the real world of programming, you choose one of these to solve a specific problem. So JavaScript is a language that is embedded in every single web browser. And so it's a, it's a popular language partially for that reason. And so when you say, hey, I need to make a new banking app, and I need to, when I log into the bank, I want to make sure that it, puts up a big red bell, you know, rings a, rings, a, uh, rings a bell and, you know, puts up a big red box whenever I do something wrong in the password field. You would choose JavaScript and you'd write a set of commands and you would modify uh, that password field. And if everything went well after a day or two of work, you know, the, the box would turn red. Uh, yeah, just for that one little thing. You, you write in the article about attending a meeting uh, about... Uh, integrating data into software about email. How, how is email data going to appear? And, you know, it's days and days and days, months and months on just one little, one little thing. Well, and this is the thing that as someone who runs a business that, that writes software for people, um, that we run into a lot because it's, it's very, very expensive. And my team is, is experienced and it's, people come to us with uh, a lot of times, and it's a difficult sales process because what you want to do is when somebody walks in the door and says, I want to make a new app that, you know, will connect everyone to everything. You want to go, great, that sounds fantastic. But often people come in with stars in their eyes, and they leave with slumped shoulders because we, all we do is, as, as engineers and product managers and designers is, is think about all the things that can go wrong. And uh, it's a kind of fundamentally pessimistic worldview because you know that when you release this software into the world, if it works, thousands of people will be beating on it and finding things that go wrong and having to reboot their computers because of something you screwed up. And so your entire day is really spent thinking about risks. And, um, and so it, it definitely is uh, culturally, it can seem a little crabby. And because you're thinking about those risks, you're thinking about how they add up and how to manage them. And that's very expensive. Unfortunately, it'd be great if it wasn't as expensive, but it is. It costs, programmers are expensive, programming is expensive, and it takes a long time. Uh, one of the, your uh, headings is, Why are coders angry? There are intense arguments over languages, I understand. There really are, and I think it's like anything. It's, it's one of those things where the difference is the, the battles are so fierce because the stakes are so small, but um, there are incredibly strong opinions as to the right way to program, and they can overwhelm any discussion about how the software is going to get built. Uh, where you see it on, uh, you, you see it a lot when people are, are, one of the things actually that's been very interesting with, with mobile technology getting so big is that there's kind of been one right way to program um, for a long time and for uh, 
Android, you're mostly writing in Java, and for uh, up until a couple years ago for iOS, for the Apple platform, you were mostly writing in a language called Objective-C. And so they might argue about the style, but less about the actual language. But in the world of the web and the web backend where you make servers that talk to browsers, the, the fights have been going on for a decade plus as to which one is better. And what people like to do is point to a language like this one called PHP and say, well, that's a hideous language and I hate the way it works. I don't, I don't like this aspect of it and that aspect of it. And then the PHP people will go, yeah, but it sure works. And look over here, Yahoo uses it and they're a big company. And someone else will go, who cares over here? You know, Google is using Python, and that's a great language. And then a third party will come in and go, yeah, but it has a thing called the global interpreter lock. And then everyone will fight about whether the, the global interpreter lock actually matters or not. And it, it's all uh, – and this goes on online, on forums. It goes on for hours and days and decades. And the arguments are not polite, right? You write, coding is a culture of blurters. You're, you're – you're, uh rewarded for fast decisions, which also includes fast interactions. Yeah, it's, that is the reality. It's, um, you know, as, as time has gone on since that article, I've increasingly come to appreciate people who quietly go away and think for a little bit. Uh, it's, a very, it's a very kind of masculine culture a lot of the time, and it's very um, brusque. There's a pride in brusqueness. And it's, it's tricky because you have to draw a line between honesty, which is incredibly important, and brusqueness, brusqueness which can often be someone trying to push their idea through. And um, so it can be a very honest culture where people go, look, I've seen that five or six times. I understand why you are enthusiastic about it. I was too, but in my experience, it fails. Uh, you think that that will scale and it will serve 10 million people, but it will not because these four things will happen. And everyone will have been very excited about the new easy way to do things, and someone will come in and throw a big cold bucket of water on top of that. That's actually wonderful. Everybody saves time and money and doesn't go down a bad path. On the flip side, someone can just come in and say, like, your solution's really stupid. You didn't think it through, and then stop there. Both of those behaviors are very normal in the world of, of programming. Um, I try to encourage the first kind and diminish the second kind, but uh, it is just part of the culture. And you'd say the culture is is quite masculine. In fact, I I think you know we we, we know we've heard that uh, computer programming it's it's very masculine world. It didn't used to be that way. Early days it was women, right? But it's it, do you find that still pretty masculine? A lot of men in in this field. Uh, unbelievably so, and to its tremendous discredit as a field. It is a uh, a field where. Um, it, it, it just is all the bad things and all the frustrating things about uh, about that aspect of technology and about uh, – it, it sometimes just feels like you're in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, what was interesting, after I wrote that article, I started to get – I got hundreds of emails, and a shocking number for me as someone who uh, has been a technologist for about two decades, but a shocking number of the emails I got – were from women who preceded me by a full generation. And so I'm 40, they were in their 60s. And they said, oh my God, I used to program Fortran on the IBM 650, and this brought it all back. And what was amazing to me is that I, after that cohort, I got emails almost exclusively from men or from women talking about how frustrating uh, the industry had been for them and how they'd left. So there was a moment, and I think maybe a little cynically, that because people thought that it was almost secretary or clerical, people were happy to have women programming. And then there was a point where it just became a very masculine industry and really locked in. And just an unpleasant place for women to spend time. And at the same time, other industries were opening to women uh, and were welcoming, welcoming them. I mean, you think about you know law or, or the medical professions. And... Um, and so it just has – we've ended up in, the, in a very bad situation where it's actually really hard. It's hard to recruit. Uh, it, you have to send a very clear signal that your company is genuinely welcoming to women and understands what that means. Uh, the default – and I know this from hiring – the default assumption of a talented woman engineer, and there are thousands and thousands of them, um, is that a company will be – an, an engineering or software-focused company will be hostile to women. Hmm. That's the default assumption. Wow. Yep. 
Uh, and I've, I've I've read reports from the you know the just very recently from this this is from Silicon Valley uh, women reporting uh, you know hostile work environment you know harassment uh, culture as you said uh, characterized it stuck in the sixties. It's terrible, and it's it's. Uh, I don't want to be in any. I'm not going to make any excuses for it or try to justify it. It's just really it's a sad aspect because. What's happening is we're making these products that are changing culture. Technology is absolutely having a fundamental effect on how culture works. And, and you know, I mean, just the other, just yesterday, really, Facebook announced that it was going to um, stop promoting as many articles from established news organizations and let things happen, uh, let things emerge organically when friends and family paste links to news in in your Facebook wall. So that's... That was seen as more of a media story, but the reality is that's one company that is very much sort of Anglo-Saxon men, uh, you know, in in how the the overall makeup of the firm. And a lot of these companies publish their they're trying to do better. They publish their diversity statistics, but that's a company deciding how the world is going to get its news. And those decisions are being made by lots and lots of people, but specifically by one kind of person. Mm-hmm. And I just don't, I don't buy it. I don't buy that long-term that can work. I think you just have to have a divert, like, there's no such thing as a pure programmer. Every programmer is thinking about the user and, and about how the language in the, in the application works and what's going to happen on the other side. There's always culture embedded in this. And so you need a broader range of human beings to, to make things that actually matter and, and do what they're supposed to do. That's an interesting point. You, you might think of... Programming is being, you know, very, you know, zeros and ones. It's 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 very set. It's very mathematical, but it it does get into culture, doesn't it? And therefore, broader culture programmers doing the programming would would be beneficial. Well, an unbelievable amount of programming is actually. I mean, there's a certain amount that is. We need to rotate a triangle in a in a virtual imagined space. Like that is just deep math, and it's how you you know the it's underneath your video game engines, but. The vast majority the majority of it is I need to put this box up, and it needs to have an alert in it. And someone which who may be the programmer or may be the person who is down the hall needs to write the text in the, uh, in the alert box. And also, do we want to consider that we might have colorblind users? And so do we want to count on red being the alert color, or do we want to have some sort of visual signal? Well, then we need to get the designer in. And so... You can see, like, all of these things, people might have clearly specified roles, but ultimately it's these are cultural products. They're not about rotating that triangle. They're about encouraging a user to move their mouse and enter some text and getting them involved in a process. So it, it's very um, it's very actually humane that way. It's very or very humanistic because you're thinking about behavior and culture, but it often isn't expressed that way. But the actual work is uh, to a great degree about creating these experiences that human beings are going to have. So last thing on this topic, how does that culture get changed to be more inviting to, to women, say? Um, I'm not the right person to speak about that because it's just, there's a lot out there. I mean, the Association for Computing Machinery, there are uh, websites like Model View Culture. There's an enormous range of opinion and thought about this. The, I can tell you the things that I've done as a co-founder of a company is um, just constantly say it, you know, and, and try to communicate it as much as possible. That um, I, I think part of it is just you just have to acknowledge that, uh, you know, you have to, a lot of these companies simply don't have human resources. They don't have a path where if somebody is sexually harassed or feels that they're not able to do their job because of the culture, they don't have a, a place where someone can complain. Uh, they don't have parental leave policy. Uh, they don't have, um, you know, so it's, it's all of those things, the things that basically indicate to women that uh, their status in society is understood and respected by the organization. Like, if that's not there, then why would someone apply? Um, so it's a lot of it's really basic stuff, stuff that other industries have solved years ago. But when you're thinking about small startups with 15, 20 people, often they don't they don't address that and they don't think about it because they just want to get bodies through the door and start solving problems. You just joined us. We're uh, oh, go ahead. No, please go ahead. Uh, we're we're talking with Paul Ford, 
Uh, his uh, issue-length article called What is Code uh, appeared uh, last year, June of last year, in Bloomberg Business Week. You can find that online. Uh, his website, a lot of interesting things there, F-Train, and uh, you may have heard his commentary is on NPR's All Things uh, Considered. He lives in Brooklyn. He's a writer and programmer, and we have him for the hour. You can join us here at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, let's uh, treat another t- topic where, um, as you point out in your article, stereotyping can be dangerous. I know this is out there. I'll just read this uh, part of a paragraph. You say, programming is a task that rewards intense focus and can be done with a small group or even in isolation. It's come to have an association with Asperger's syndrome. Many programmers will say they are, quote, somewhere on the spectrum, though these self-diagnoses can be a little self-serving. Being obsessive is seen as a good thing by many coders. And some jobs programs successfully place uh, people on autism spectrum programming careers, uh, but then you go on to, to say it could be you know, a little bit dangerous to to broad brush this. Well, I think that it's just there's there's been there's a lot of just strange assumptions with the world of programming. There's um, that programmers do better if they have a little if they are a little bit on the spectrum. That it that it's a that white men are somehow better at it. And like all these things just kind of get baked in. And it's just, they're, it's like anything. It's such a huge industry. It's, it's, I, don't know, I think it's like 18 million people globally. I have the statistic in the article um, that all sorts of human behaviors, like every, you think about it, like this is a um, programmers. If you put them all together, they'd be about as big as the New York city or Los Angeles metro area. Right? It's pretty huge community and you think about all the different behaviors that you see when you walk down broadway in new york city or you walk around los angeles um that's programming and so it's like trying to paint it with any single brush or say that any specific kind of person or any specific kind of personality is the exact right personality is um i mean there's some truth like it is a good working knowledge of algebra is really necessary in order to because you have to think about variables, and a lot of your work is often about you know mathematics uh, in, a, in a really kind of broad, simple way. So some basics are real, um, but like if you can if you can figure out like you know how to paint a room and how much paint you're going to need, you actually have about the right amount of mass for an awful lot of tasks related to to simple front end programming. It's not it's not that crazy, and so um, yeah. So I think that it's just it's like everyone has a stereotype of a New Yorker and I live here and actually I find the people who live here to be in, in New York City to be very gentle and, and forthcoming and very helpful and actually quite kind after 20 years here. Uh, but there's a, a stereotype when you leave the city that we're all a bunch of brusque, sort of cranky folk. And it's not real. It's not the actual experience that I have in the city. Uh, and the same is true of programming. But you write a reference to the part of the article. You say there are 11 million professional software developers on Earth, according to research from IDC. Additional 7 million are hobbyists, so that's roughly the population of the greater Los Angeles metro area. So you say, imagine all of L.A. programming. East Hollywood would be for Mac programmers, West L.A. for mobile, Beverly Hills for finance programmers, all of Orange County for Windows, lots of other neighborhoods. I think it's a very interesting way to put it. Chris, the reality is they all live together. Everybody's all mixed up. Right, um, right. If you've got the, the Android programmer and the Mac programmer and the iOS programmer and the web programmer are all working in the same room because um, they're kind of all roughly solving similar problems. You're going to say they have different cultures, different tribal folklores. Uh, so if you say, if you told me a systems administrator was taking a juggling class, that would make sense, I'd expect a product manager to take a trapeze class. Are these actual examples? I'm I'm being asked to justify my jokes a year later. The reality is I got emails from product managers who said, how did you know? Really? Really? Oh, yeah. You you nailed it. Okay. They took, oh, yeah, Yeah. they take trapeze classes. It's, um... It's like anything. You, know, you walk down the hall. I'm sure if you walk down the hall at your office, you there. There are people who are temper, temperamentally aligned to certain roles, and they they often are in those roles. You know, it's uh, systems administrators require a tremendous amount of focus, and it's a classic. It's actually kind of a classic nerdy job. Like you, it's a it's a culture where people get you know, like a lot of the sysadmins I've known are really into science fiction. Not all, but a lot. And even if they're cool and hip and so on and they're they're still into sci-fi they're still pretty nerdy like it's just a nerdy job 
and so uh, so you can you can actually you can you can make fun of them. But I mean, those are not those are uh, those are not intended to be reductive. It's just funny to see over and over how certain personality types do play out in mm-hmm. the work that people do. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, if, if you talk to professional musicians, say in an orchestra, there there be stereotypes about the cello players and the, you know, and the, and the percussion players, and and those in that world will sort of you know poke fun at each other in a in a hopefully a fun way. Based no, on but that. that's exactly right. They, you know, and it, it's you have to. Everyone gets their kind of comic chips on their shoulders about you know the percussionists start to act dumb on purpose because people make fun of them because they're not cello players. It's that. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. So it, it's definitely, it, but that's the thing. It's a culture. It's a, it's a set of understandings, and and there's some given, give and take and play, and ideally mutual respect as well. You're right. As a class, programmers are easily bored, love novelty, and are obsessed with various forms of productivity enhancement. I I immediately group myself in there. I'm, I'm obsessed with pro- productivity enhancement, especially productivity software, uh, and I think it's just a, it, it's kind of an attempt to use magic to make myself more productive when, when actually you have to apply discipline and it's, it's just a tool. So I'll, I'll, I'll go through a series of these. So I immediately, um, immediately was drawn to that. Well, I have a certain hypothesis that if the best productivity system would be one that completely changed itself every month or so, so you had to go learn a new one. Like it's those of us who are into that world and I'm, I'm in there too, like you, Part of the process of becoming more productive is learning the new system, moving all of your stuff into it, and deciding that this one will really, really work. And then there's this amazing, like, six-week burst where you're like, wow, this is great. And then your your body's natural defenses against getting things done uh, start to emerge, and, and you find ways to route around. But for a moment, the signal that comes off of the new product and the randomness of it, like the fact that it's new, requires you to pay attention. And you remember that you like getting things done. Yeah, um, I, I think you're onto something. I would buy that <laughs> software. Exactly, the one that you that truly takes control away. Right. Um, but no, I think it's it's like anyone who is, uh, you programmers have tremendous faith in the power of software, or they wouldn't be in the business. So that's one of the reasons they like productivity software and they like techniques and tools. They're algorithmic thinkers. They they look for processes. But I think. Um, Really what it is, too, is that uh, it, there's so much signal coming in, and there is in your job, there is in my job. Like you, you really can if you're a programmer. There's so much to learn. Computers are vast. The Internet is vast. The world of technology is vast. And there's so much to learn and so much to do that it's unbelievably easy to, to get lost. Plus, we all work on the largest distraction machine ever created by humanity. It's not like we're out in the field um, pulling a plow and and looking at the the field around us, like there are, I could, I'm sitting here talking on the phone to you right now, looking at a white wall so that I don't stare at my laptop <laughs> because there are literally millions of things that could mm-hmm. um, keep me from focusing on this conversation. And uh, so I think that there's always a desire to get that under control because there's so much stimulus and so many things you should know. And it's it's uh, anything that can sort of help you see that from a distance and think about it in a more logical way is really valuable. Yeah, I think it really comes down to getting yourself under control, right? But I, I, speaking for myself, I, I don't like to think of it that way because I often fail at getting myself under control. Um, but we all do, right? Like yeah. I, We should all forgive ourselves. Right. I mean, it's so hard. It's uh, Perfectly productive people are also not always that creative. I mean, it is... Uh, it is a, it, you're, you're wrestling with yourself, but at the same time, you know, the more as I go on, the more I accept that my best work is done kind of just goofing around and thinking thoughts, uh, the happier I am. So it's, it's a wrestling match. Hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to use that. I'm going to tell that to my boss. That's uh, but, <laughs> but, but I think that it is serious as well. I, I agree with it. Um, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about specific languages and it, it as I was reading through and, and you have specific examples, you show, you know, a, a screenshot of Fortran, a screenshot of Lisp, for example, and and very, even though I didn't understand it, it did. Uh, in my mind, I took a parallel to you know to languages, you know that, that we that we speak, and there there are different uh, cultures associated, and uh, and and language can be very beautiful. We'll talk about that following this break. 
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cafe Ibis 9th Annual Community Street Dance and Silent Auction for Four Paws Rescue, Saturday, July 9th at 7 p.m., 52 Federal Avenue in Logan, featuring music by Blazin' Aces and Regal Beagle. Details at cafeibis.com. And support for the StoryCorps project is made possible by our members and Uinta Basin Healthcare in Roosevelt. Founded in 1944, celebrating over 70 years of service. Offering hospital, clinic, and pharmacy services. Details at ubh.org. Next time on Ask Me Another, I talk to the cast of Wet Hot American Summer about shooting the original film on a shoestring budget. We lived in the cabins. Everyone did. We ate the camp food until the crew revolted, and then we had to get in food from the local restaurant. It was like Valley Forge. Join me, Ophira Eisenberg, on Ask Me Another, NPR's hour of puzzles, word games, and trivia. Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Paul Ford. He's a writer and programmer. He lives in Brooklyn. He's a founding partner of Postlight. His company in New York City builds internet platforms, develops interactive products. You may have heard his commentaries on NPR's All Things Considered. He writes for the Morning News and other publications. His website is ftrain.com. Uh, he wrote an entire issue of Bloomberg Business Week in June of last year. Uh, responding to the question, can you tell me what code is? Uh, it's called What is Code? And it's... Uh, uh, takes a look into the world of computer programming and the culture of programmers. Uh, so I want to talk a bit about languages, uh, Paul Ford. Um, let me launch in here with uh, with this quote. You say, as computer scientist Dijkstra once described it, the use of COBOL cripples the mind. Its teaching should therefore be regarded as a criminal offense. This gets into uh, uh, people have very strong opinions about specific languages. And uh, as I saw the screenshots of, say, Fortran versus uh, Lisp processor, Lisp, there there are very much differences. You write that Fortran, I think pe- some people make fun of it because you just smell the the old technology coming off the screen, but uh, COBOL still used, banks love it, Fortran still used, Lisp, you know, and there, there are a lot of uh, elegant differences between languages. Yeah, you know, what happens is these languages get affiliated with certain cultures, right? Like Fortran is still in use. Um, in scientific community, in the scientific community, if you're going to model a nuclear explosion or control a telescope, um, it's very possible that the code that does that's written in Fortran, and it has been since the, the 50s. And what happens is you come into a new job and you just got your PhD, and they say, "Hey, you, you know, Susie, go over there and figure out what's going on with that that telescope." Well, you can't actually start everything from scratch using a more modern and exciting process even if it's a new you know even if it's running on a new computer it's still running this old code and it's running and that code might represent you know 20,000 hours of labor over 20 years as people have adapted and changed it and it's all held together with string and and, and bailing wire and scotch tape and um and so you're going to just sit down and learn the language you're going to learn fortran and you're going to do whatever you need to do using that language and then suddenly you're kind of acclimatized to the culture and you're you go down the hall and you know Susie goes down the hall and there's Mike and she says hey Mike do you know how to do this and he goes sure and then they have a little talk and they complain about the language and and so so you you get into these frameworks and these languages by being in certain environments Um, in the same way that like by you want to make a web page and make it sing and dance you're pretty much going to learn JavaScript. Um, Lisp was the language of the artificial intelligence community through the 80s, and so it was a, a real sort of, it had a lot of a lot of military applications and a lot of academic and creative applications, and those, it would actually sort of, sometimes the, that will bring those cultures together, which I always find very interesting. Like, open source software in general is one of the very few environments where you can find radical leftists actually collaborating with and, um, dealing with code that comes from the Department of Defense. <laughs> that, that is fun to think about. Yeah. And, and as with languages, you know, non-computer languages, quote-unquote regular languages, language associated with culture. It's, it's inevitable. That's right. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's a body of lore and knowledge that you pick up, and each one is just different enough. And depending on your personality, you either see this as a tool to get your work done or you see it as a territory to be defended and you want to talk about how 
yours is better than all the others. And uh, so that's that's part of the culture too. You're right that there's a uh, there's kind of a uh, mythology of youth surrounding programming. I want to just read this uh, this paragraph. Uh, you you write JavaScript is fast moving right now. Too much of what you know today may be useless in six months. Every hard-fought factoid about the absolute best and most principled way to use the language will be fetid zoo garbage by the end of the year. And some sniveling, bearded man-toddler will be looking slightly to your right with his pale, buzzword-infected eyes and awkwardly mumbling, Yeah, no, wow, it says you have to have a lot of gulp and angular, but I'm guessing you don't use flea job or grimex with the snert extensions. Long sigh. I'm just not sure you're going to like working here. I think all those are made up, right? The, uh, no, are, are they, the very last part. Uh, uh, okay. Gulp and all that stuff. Oh, Gulp and real. Angular uh, are real, but okay. <laughs> no, this is the thing, right? It's, uh, it's, it's such a big industry, and there's certain parts that are very fad-driven, and, and people get very invested in the fads. I'll tell you, as I've gotten older, uh, I still keep my skills up, even though mostly I'm, I'm managing and running the company, but I... I uh, as I've gotten older, I've, I care less and less about the language. I care more and more about um, the underlying set of expertise and principles. And so when somebody comes and tells me that they're a JavaScript expert, uh, I'm interested and enthused. I want to hear from this person. But I'm also a little bit suspicious. I want them to show me that they have some understanding of computer science as a larger discipline and some awareness that uh, things change very rapidly in this industry, and that the skills that they have today that they're going to that they're not going to dig their heels in. I mean, one of the sources of uh, we um, our engineering team at work. I was very impressed about six months ago. People were very invested in a certain framework and platform. And uh, there's a new thing kind of on the block called React that comes from Facebook, and it's a it's a way to build applications for the web and in the front end in the browser. And uh, I watched with a lot of respect as this team dropped their loyalty and went to React because they saw very specific advantages. And that uh, you have to you have to have people who people who succeed don't dig their heels in um, on a certain technology unless they can really justify why it's the right uh, the right solution for a specific problem. Yeah, I think one of the stereotypes is is the you know computers, computer programming, it's divorced from people, right? But but as you're mentioning, managing programmers is very much very much about people, it's people skills. It's management. It is, and I think it's, it's you know, they still spend all day. Um, you know, you still in a good environment, you're not doing too many meetings, and you're you are spending you know somewhere between four to ten hours deeply invested in a problem on a given day, figuring things out. You may not, you may be reading as much as you're writing code. Uh, you may be reading other people's code. You may be looking at things and, and looking at the changes that other people have brought into the system and, and pushing back and giving them feedback. Like that's, that's part of the job of programming. A lot of it happens in chat rooms. A lot of it happens in talking about requests for changes. Um, so it's, it's increasingly actually a community exercise to the point that there are ways to do it uh, where people talk about pair programming and where two individuals have one keyboard and uh, just work together kind of continually discussing things. The reality is that, sorry, I, I know I'm going on here, but the reality is that, like, there are some days, many days, where 10, 20, 30 lines of code are great, and there are even better days when you get rid of a 1,000 lines of code and replace them with 10 lines of code. Uh, it, it's a, The best code is actually quite terse. You might not be, it's not like filing copy in a newspaper, uh, it's much more that you are doing some research and trying to create the optimal, smallest solution because that will be the easiest one to maintain. Hmm. I noticed an article recently in Medium.com, but I definitely want to bring this up with you. This is an article by Lauren Mendoza, describes herself as a software engineer, aerialist, San Francisco native. Uh, the title is Coding is Over. Subtitle, uh, when many products are essentially the same app with different color schemes and copy, why are we still coding? That doesn't do her article justice, but I, I wonder this the the general idea. What do you think? Well, I love that article because she actually. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. I I I think she did two things really well in there. I I think she wrote that. It, it, she raised some great points, and I think she also wrote it in such a way that it was guaranteed to drive a certain group of people completely bananas. And uh, 
And so it was both a very good, thoughtful piece and also a great act of trolling. Um, but the mm. point that she made that was really strong is that uh, a certain amount of play has gone out of the, the system that, you know, and I, I remember this very well. My experience of the web when I was um, younger, which was nice, I liked that part, but also didn't have as much knowledge or awareness, uh, was really based on play. It wasn't about doing it right all the time. It was about poking around and figuring out how to do new things. And that was encouraged. And novelty and, and silliness were actually a little more welcomed in the culture. And what, what's happened is the money has gotten so big and the frameworks have gotten so big and, and things have gotten so focused on building large, scalable applications. Even, you know, what, what people want to do is make the next Instagram. And uh, that the sense of exploration has gone out of it. And she points out that there's an enormous amount of work uh, that you can kind of just get done for you. Like she points to a service called Algolio, which is a um, Algolio, which is a search tool. Like you give it your data and it makes it searchable. So now you don't have to build your own search. Um, that's great. It doesn't actually work in every single circumstance. And there's all sorts of business requirements and other stuff that come in. But the, the core fact of it is that we're always kind of standing on the shoulders of um, millions and millions of person hours of work whenever we're doing this stuff. And it's very easy to forget all that work that came before. Uh, but we're always taking enormous advantage. If you're successful in this business, you're always taking enormous advantage of everything that's out there that's been done for you. And you don't try to reinvent it. And Sorry, go ahead. Oh, oh uh, I was going to say, we just have a minute left, uh, so I'll have you be very quick on this. But I noticed uh, just a paragraph long, brief appreciation of George A. Miller. I think it was the New York Times. Uh, he was instrumental in creating WordNet. Um, so you're very brief, I guess, uh, words on George A. Miller and, and WordNet. Yes, yeah, so... Um... George Miller was a very, it was an early cognitive scientist, cognitive theorist, and he had a project, and if I'm remembering, it was at Princeton. And uh, he, graduate students, all sorts of folks, they went, got together, and they made a, a dictionary slash thesaurus that really attempted to connect language in new ways, like showed, you know, hierarchies so that you could look at it and you, you could enter the word paw and it would tell you that, you know, a dog and a cat both have paws and stuff like that. It was, and so he was just an inspirational figure for me as a, as a young linguistically oriented nerd, someone who actually uh, was an academic and a thoughtful person who, and who said, you know, let's try to do something and then did it and it was given away for free. And you can still see traces of WordNet everywhere uh, in, in how language is used online. It, it shows up in all sorts of tools and frameworks. So, yeah, it's uh, a, the, the power of what's out there, you know, what, what can be done online. Uh, we are uh, out of time. We've been talking with Paul Ford, and you can find his uh, issue-length article called What is Code? in uh, Bloomberg Business Week. It came out uh, last year. Interesting discussion. Uh, thank you so much, Paul Ford. Appreciate it. Thanks. Tom, I would add one thing. If you're curious about this world, the, the engineers I know recommend freecodecamp.com as a way to get started. Okay, freecodecamp.com. All right, great. We'll, we'll put that out there. Thank okay. you. Thank you so much. And thanks thank for you. listening to Access Utah.